House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back to the House of Mystery on KFNX Phoenix, 1100 AM, Independent Talk Radio. I'm your host, Al Warren, and co-host is Kev Thompson. Hey, Al. How's it going this morning? You know, another another beautiful day. Um, <laughs> now, we're, we're back in true crime again, and uh, if you remember, we had that um, betrayal in blue um, just, just not too long ago with Burl Bear. Mm-hmm. And um, so now we've got one of the guys that um, uh, the book was kind of uh, based on. It was uh, it was kind of his memoirs, and, and he had a lot to do with it. And uh, he's uh, graciously said he'd come on and talk about it. Um, and his name's Ken Urell. And uh, thank you for being on the show, Ken. Happy to be here. Hello, gentlemen. How are you? Always good. Doing great. Welcome aboard. Thank you. Well, so uh, so this is uh, this was quite a story actually. At first, um, the first time I actually heard about it was through Burl and and um, uh, doing an interview with him and stuff. How did you get um, connected with Burl to do the book? Well, what happened was I had written my memoirs probably going back twenty five years ago. I started writing it when I was actually actively involved in crime, and I knew. Someday there's going to be a movie or a book. It was, it, was, it was that outrageous, the things we were doing. So I was actively writing things down. And uh, after our, we actually got arrested probably six or seven years into it. And uh, I shelved m- my memoir. And probably when the Internet started hitting around 2002, 2003, I made a small little website. I put out the uh, very short version of my memoir just to, get like a historical record out there as opposed to everything that was already in the press uh, on the internet for you know, a number of years I had you know um, relatively small amount of uh, visitors to the site and then um, what happened was there was a producer television and movie producer who as a kid as a teenager he was very familiar with our story and he would skip high school to go home and watch us on the news. There was a live, live commission on it. And oh, wow. uh, he always said one day he would like to make a movie about this. And what happened, as, as he, years go by, he becomes big time. He gets in touch with a director and tells the director, the director Tiller Russell, to come look up our story. And he found my story on the Internet. And he approached me. And then he approached a number of other guys within the, in the story. And they made a documentary on us. And from there, I started pushing the book again, and I was writing true crime authors. And from um, Tampa, Tampa journalist Paul Guzzo was very interested in doing it, but he thought it was beyond his ability, so he put me in touch with Burl, and that's how me and Burl hooked up. Fantastic. Now, now for the people that don't know much about the story, um, I, how did how did it start for you? Now you were a twenty year old police officer for NYPD, and um, how did you get connected with Mike Dowd? Well, I got I got hired at twenty years old, and for six years I went along being a regular cop, going out making my arrests and doing a, doing a, you know your police duties. 
And eventually, I was without a partner, approximately early 1987, and Dowd had uh, been on the... Uh, the no-good list, and they had shipped him out of the precinct to go to Coney Island for uh, six months as a sort of like a punishment, like a if you were back in high school, like considered a detention. Yeah. Back in the police department, it was considered a dumping ground. The commanding officer would try to get rid of their bad apples for six months, you know, to get them beyond their ability to uh, to take care of them. And when he came back, I happened to have an open seat in my car, and they kept putting him in the car with me. And little by little, he kept, you know, testing me to see how much uh, I would cross the thin blue line that separates cops and criminals. And eventually, he stuck some money in my hand, and I came to a crossroads. It, it, it's a, it's a, as an honest police officer, it's a very tough road to cross because growing up, you hear about all these stories I heard about, you know, Prince of the City and Serpico and all that. And if you go to the higher-ups in internal affairs about your fellow officer, it doesn't end up well for you. I mean, Serpico, they ended up letting him get shot. So yeah. what happened was I accepted the money, and it grows from there. I, I, was I didn't gonna... want to cut my own apartment by not taking it. Yeah. I was going to say, when you said he was put on the no-good list, so uh, was he known for doing that kind of thing beforehand? He had, yeah, he had a very bad reputation for corruption and a uh, number of complaints against him, and Internal Affairs was looking at him already. And their way of doing it, because there was a previous scandal uh, a year earlier in another precinct, so the department, the higher-ups, they didn't want another scandal. So what they did was, they sent him away for six months to another priest and hoping that he would, you know, have a light bulb over his head and say, okay, this is time to stop. But he saw it as an opportunity that they didn't want to, you know, have another scandal, and he gambled, and he kept doing it. And mm -hmm. fortunately, I got dragged into it. Well, well Ken, I, I have maybe a double aspect question here. Um, first of all, how did you feel being saddled with this man who had this type of reputation and secondly when he put that money in your hand for that infinitesimal moment in time what went through your mind well when they kept putting him in the car I vehemently you know protested it I went to roll call I said I don't want to work with the guy and basically said I had no choice I had whole bunch of cops come over and tell them, don't work with him, you know, give up your car, go, you know, go go uh, walk a foot post so you don't have to work with him. And I thought I was uncorruptible, which was a sad mistake. <laughs> and uh, when we did have that first situation, when he put the money in my hand, you know, basically I have three choices. I could take the money and accept it and hopefully it doesn't happen again. I could not take the money and tell him no thanks and be just as guilty because now I know he did a crime. Or I could turn him into the in, you know, internal affairs unit, which is basically cutting my own throat in the department. Because if you, you know, snitch or rat or whatever you want to call it on a fellow officer, you, your career is basically over. You have ruined your career path. And much yes. like, you know, 
like I said earlier, Serpico, you know, you don't have those fellow brother cops there to back you up because they'll never trust you. Yeah, I, I understand. I've worked with the sheriff's department here for 15 years, and then I worked three years in corrections and three years in counter-narcotics previous to that. Um, but we, you know, we're always on guard working with inmates. We're always on guard for this type of game. But I will be damned if we don't have officers that, that fall for the same thing. Um when you took that money that first time, did it ever cross your mind that maybe now he's got me? If I ever refuse a future request, he's going to point back to this and maybe he'll turn the tables on me. What, what happened was I, I, I really didn't understand the depth of corruption that was, this was going to lead to because he started, started out with a small step. It was only $100 that he had passed to me. That, what happened is he grabbed $800 from the scene. And I didn't even notice it. And then in the car while we drove away, he gave me $100. He said, here, this is for you. So he takes these little steps. And what my thought was, all right, I'm going to take it. I'm not going to say nothing. I put it up in my locker. It sat in my locker for a couple of months. And I thought I could return to being a normal cop. Once I take the money and I cross the line, there's no returning. Because now he was more brazen to show me more things and be more corrupt in front of me. Yes, because he had kind of bought your trust. Exactly. He gained, he gained, he gained my trust, and uh, that was it, you know. I, I don't want to say I was trapped, because, I mean, I had a choice. I could have turned him in and cut my own throat, but that's not what I did. You know, yeah. I'm a young 26-year-old kid with a, with a wife and a young baby, and I didn't want to ruin my career. My, my goal at that point was not ruining my career. But unfortunately, it happened anyway. And in a worse yeah. way. So anyone out there that goes through the situation again, turn the cop in. Turn the guy in. Turn your brother officer in. I, I understand. Um, before we proceed any further with this interview, uh, let me explain my approach. Is I've been in your shoes previously. Right. And now as a lieutenant in the sheriff's department, I am very sympathetic with where you're coming from because I, I understand how it feels. Any time after, let's say you turn this officer in, any time after that, you wonder if, if you're in a dangerous situation, are my fellow officers going to have my back or are they going to set me up exactly. for, for failure or, or even death? That's exactly right. And that's the exact thought that went through my, through my head. And now, you know, 30-something years later, after having all this time to reflect on it, what I wish I would have done was go to an outside agency. I could have went to, you know, uh, the, uh, the uh, special prosecutor's office. I could have went to the DEA. I could, have, I could have done, you know, there were other choices without going within my department. Because if I would have went within my department, it would have leaked back to the guys in the precinct, and I would have been, you know, in trouble. I would have been cut in my own throat, like I said. Exactly, because it, it is law enforcement as a whole, even in the judicial side of it, it is a small community. So it's always in the back of your mind, if I go, let's say, to the DA's office, they're going to talk to who? My chain of command, and eventually it's going to get back down to the ground level. Now, uh, now you, you, took this, you took this money. Uh, what happened after that? How, how much more brazen did this get? From there on, he just he just opened his game wide up. 
he started telling me about all his past uh, past criminal acts with his uh, previous partners and the things they did. And I mean, he's not talking. I'm not talking a hundred dollars anymore. I'm talking, you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars grabbing from the scene, grabbing a kilo of cocaine from the scene. <laughs> now I, I, I'm in deep because yeah, he, he starts playing on the greed factor. Here you are, a young officer making seven hundred dollars biweekly. And he's talking about walking away from a scene with $50,000. You know, that's twice your paycheck in one day, twice your, your year in one day. Shoot, that's how much I make a year right now. <laughs> exactly. And we're talking, you know, back in 1987. So, you know, it, it, it becomes a greed factor jumps in there, and you're no longer – you're still doing police work, but now your main priority – my main – all main priority was – going out and finding money, finding those bad guys that had their stash, and instead of arresting them and turning in all, all the proceeds to the precinct and vouchering them, you let them go, and you keep, you keep everything. You keep the drugs and cash, and they're happy because they're not getting arrested. If they get arrested, they lose their drugs and cash anyway. They're criminal. Mm. So it was almost, if, you know, pardon my language, if this sounds a little bit too abrupt, but it was almost an extortion. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess you could say it's an extortion. It, I mean, it, 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 it's more like, yeah, I guess you could say it's extortion. You give me this amount of money, I'm going to take your money, I'm going to take your drugs, and in exchange, you do not get arrested. And, or or and, did I misunderstand? It's it's because when you, it's it's not like we knew who this, these particular deals were and then we went there and made a deal with them. It's if you caught them in the act and then just took everything and say, okay, you're you're free to go. You're not getting arrested, and they'd just be happy. It's not like we went to them and made a deal. Later on, we hooked up with a major drug organization and we basically became muscle for them, and there was a business arrangement. So I, I wouldn't exactly say extortion. I apologize. I wasn't trying to be rude or abrupt. No, that's all right. That's all right. Context. Technically, technically, it might have been considered an extortion. You know. Yeah. Well, you know. So, so, what was the level that you went to? Um, like, what was the amount of cash that you guys were were bringing in? Do you think? When when we went and made an arrangement with a major drug organization, it was uh, the Diaz organization who was moving multi-million dollars worth of cocaine every week, we were on his payroll for $8,000 a week cash. Wow. Um, so how, how quite a increase over our $700 bi-weekly paycheck. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so how did that affect your lifestyle? Were you guys able to spend a lot of that money at that time, or did you try and hide it? I, I tried to be a lot more careful than my partner. I would spend my paycheck on all my, you know, utility bills and my mortgage and everything, and the cash I would keep for, you know, cash items. You know, you go out and you buy new furniture, you take a vacation on cash. You, it was, you know, basically in place of a credit card. And, you know, but at that rate, there's so much cash, it builds up also. So. Yeah. Were you worried about being caught in those in those times when you guys were kind of peaking, I guess we'll say? Desperately worried about being caught. The more careful I was about hiding everything and not letting other cops know, 
was the more brazen my partner became. He was more comfortable letting other officers know what we were doing. At one point, he went out and bought a brand-new 1987 Corvette cash, and then I argued with him about not bringing it ever to the precinct. And the very next day, he brought it to the precinct, and not only that, he parked it in a lieutenant's spot. <laughs> wow. Nothing like getting attention, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, everybody already had their suspicions, and here you are with a, a brand-new Corvette in 1987, and you bring it to work and flaunt it in front of everybody, basically, and park it in a boss's spot so, you know, boss is like, you know, are you kidding me or what? Yeah, yeah. That's got to be... Uh, so do you find yourself, you're quite opposite of, of Mike Dowd. Mike Dowd was your partner. Um, I saw him on the 7-5 because I watched that as well, and he seemed rather um, brazen about the whole thing, like uh, almost bragging he's, about he's everything. Very, very animated, very uh, magnetic personality, and I'm more reserved. We're very much opposite. I guess that's why we, we were able to get along so well together in the car. Right. You yeah, have two people saying you seem to butt heads more. Yeah. You kind of have the best in each other. Exactly. Or the worst in each other. Yeah. How, how did this affect your daily life then, how, you, you know, with your wife and your baby and your family? Were they aware of what was going on or they just sort of maybe thought it was going on? My wife knew because I'm bringing all this money into the house. I let her know, but I didn't let her know the extent of what I was actually doing told her there's going to be some money coming in, we're uh, doing things, I didn't, I, 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 to be honest, I don't remember exactly how I explained it to her, it was more like a don't ask, don't tell thing, there's going to be money coming in, don't worry about it, I always told her don't worry about it, everything will be fine, everything, they never wanted her to worry, and uh, she was very much of, we don't need this money, you know, I'll go live with you in a, in a, a trailer, we don't need this big brand new house, and we, I went out and we bought a brand new house, I had a custom built, so uh, it, it's very hard, it was like living two different lives, yeah. it's very much had to separate, almost three different lives, I had to separate being a cop, being a criminal, and being a family man. Yeah. Uh, did the other cops you work with, did, did they sort of notice, that, were there a distance, because I was saying, you know, you got a new house custom built and stuff. Uh, did you invite them over, and did they kind of know, wow, he's kind of living well? Yeah, guys, guys definitely had suspicions, but at at uh, one point my wife's father had passed away and left us a very large inheritance, so I was able to play it off on that. Mm. So they didn't have as much suspicion about me as they did my partner, who also did the same. He went out, bought a brand-new custom-built house, and... Where I sold my house and rolled money over, he kept his old houses. So he had three houses at one point, oh. and a condo in Myrtle Beach. Wow! But uh, uh, also at this point, then the blue wall, wall of silence comes into play, does it not? Absolutely, because no no one is saying nothing. Not only are the fellow officers not saying nothing, but the bosses aren't saying nothing. So it's almost like I don't I don't want to say they encouraged us to do it, but they. Definitely, you know, the silence is saying, okay, you know, this is this is fine. Go go do what you're doing. Just don't get caught. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So now, did, did it ever change? Or like, um, this is the time Giuliani was in, wasn't it? 
think Giuliani came in a little little after that. And so I do think, you think uh, he, was, um, Yeah. Do you think he cleaned it up then? Did he did he stop this from happening? He definitely didn't stop it. I mean he he cleaned up the city and crime wise, but he he didn't he didn't uh clean up corruption in the department. I you know, that that exists. It's always gonna exist as long as there's there's drugs and, you know, big amounts of money, you're gonna have officers that are gonna be tempted. Right. Hopefully, you know, body cams and you know, cameras on the on a on the police vehicles will will cut that temptation down and make an officer think twice. But there's always going to be a point where you're going to walk in. There's going to be a cop walking into a room with a you know hundred thousand in cash or more and you know a whole table full of drugs, and they're going to be tempted. Now, did you use any of the cocaine? I tried it at one point. It was a uh, I had a, because we got to the point where we were, uh, we became cocaine dealers ourselves. And I had given some cocaine to a friend who was going going into the Marines and was a sort of a going away gift. And I tried it with him and it really did nothing for me. And uh, that was it. I tried it one time. I, I, I basically lived a healthy lifestyle that way. And it, it was opposite of how I lived. It was more, it was very much a business to me as opposed to, um, drug use. Yeah, it can be exhausting living in, in both worlds like that. It, absolutely. <laughs> well, I'll do my police job and and criminal activities while I'm working, then I come home and I'd be home for an hour or two and I'd have, you know, to run out doing cocaine deals. Because fortunately, during my short-lived narcotics career, I was simply a driver. I was the guy that, that drove it from point A to point B. You know, drugs and going in one direction, guns and money in the other. Mm-hmm. And so I managed to get away with not using the, the, the drugs. Um, my cover story was, listen, I've got $50,000 worth of your drugs in this car, and you want me to drive high? Uh, okay, that's on you if you want to lose it. Exactly, yeah. That works. They don't. They don't want to lose their product. So, so, so how did it, how did it all fall apart then? Like, where did, where did it, um, where did it break down? What happened? Like I said, we we eventually became cocaine dealers ourselves. We we grabbed the cocaine in Brooklyn. We go out to Long Island where we both lived, and uh, he went his way. My partner went his way. I went my way, and we sold cocaine on our own. We purchased the cocaine together, and then we went our own ways and sold on our own. And I, I myself had a number of dealers working for me, and one of my dealers sold to an undercover cop, and that was it. Once you sell, it starts going off the tree. They put a, a tap on his phone, and they started getting all his customers, and eventually I got ensnared in the trap. And then from they take my phone, from my phone they got my partner, they got my partner's new partner, who is now in a multitude of crimes with him. So it's a, it's a big spider web. So, so what eventually happened then? So, what um, what happened to you, um, legal wise? What happened is we we all get we get arrested. There was approximately fifty people arrested. There were seven police officers and like forty three civilians, something like that. Holy and, smokes! Uh, they raided my house. They took all my cars. They took my cash. They took all that. In in the Suffolk County lockup for about two months, make bail. 
We all get out on bail, and while we're out on bail, my partner comes to me with a plan to skip the country and go live in Central America with our families because we're facing 25 years to life. I'm like, you're out of your mind. We're not doing that. And in this plan that he kept pushing and pushing, we got to do it. We can't do it. We're not going to do 25 years. That's crazy. Blah, 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 blah. I had a very good lawyer, and I guess his lawyer was not on top of the game as much as mine was. And my lawyer was already trying to make a, a plea bargain with, uh, with the prosecutors out in Suffolk. And at that point, my lawyer told me, look, you're facing 25 to life. You're probably going to be able to get a plea bargain for eight. Do your time. I was 32 at the time. You'll be out when you're 40. Life mm-hmm. isn't over. And I, I, was, I accepted it. It was, it was almost a relief to know, okay, this is all over. My partner did not want to accept that. He thought... You know, 25 years, he's not doing 25 years. And he had a bunch of Colombians that were renting one of his houses who came to him with a plan to go uh, hit a stash house of a customer that owed them 10 kilos of cocaine. The customer took off with the kilos and never mm-hmm. paid them. So he wanted to hit this stash house. The uh, customer's wife was still living there, grab the wife, take her to a hotel, execute her, and then split all the profits. I was like, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing this. And after he, you know, kept insisting, I'm in this plan. I'm like, is he setting me up? Because no one is going to do this while they're on bail. It's a crazy thought. But he was, his brain was so soaked in cocaine, he wasn't seeing clearly. And I was, you know, seeing things clearly. I was, no, let's do the eight years and be done with it. And I told my lawyer about it, and my lawyer's like, you're out of your mind. You you're aware of this plot. You can't let this happen. You have to, you know, sit down with the feds and let them know what's going on. And I told my partner, the feds called us in for a meeting. And he, that, he's like, that's all the more reason we need to do this. If the feds are looking at us, we're, you know, we're looking at life. It's going to be worse. I'm like, Mike, we can't do this. We're, we're going to go away forever. Eight years is eight years. Life is life, and I was looking at saying eight, and he's saying no, it's going to be life, and his plan was to go do this. So that's insane. Don't let them know what was going on. That is an insane plan, Ken. That is Butch Cassidy on Sundance Kid. I I saw that movie. I know how it ends. I didn't want to end like that. It it does sound like a setup. How convinced were you that this was a setup? Because the the, the it had to be set up because the whole plan was insane. It was insane. It's like this is, we're really not going to do this. Either the the Colombians were setting us up, and he's too stupid to see that, or he's setting the Colombians and me up. It, it couldn't be a real plot, but yet it was a real plot. The feds and the DEA sent me back out wearing a, a t- you know back in 1992. There's no micro records. I, I got a big tape record strapped to my leg. And uh, they sent me back out on the streets to uncover this plot, and I got them all on tape, the three Colombians and my, and my partner. Having, having said that, um, knowing these cartels the way that I do, how, how did you get past Colombian security in order to record this? <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't even check me. Other than a shake of the hand, our first meeting was at my partner's house. And when I got there, they, they were all there already. And I came in, I sat down at the dining room table, and they started laying out what they wanted to do. 
And uh, my partner and I told him, okay, we're going to think about it, even though I know my partner's already gone home because he got his meeting them and he told me he wanted to do it. So the Colombians left, and then my partner and I talked about it. I still tried to talk him out of it. He still gone ho. I went back, turned in that tape. They sent me back out with new tapes in another couple of days. We all got together again. We went to this house where it was supposed to be, and uh, it was basically a dry run of what we were going to do. And uh, everything was a go. And as we left that house, it was like 2 in the morning. They go, okay, we're doing it in the morning. So at two, now at 2 in the morning, I have to call up the DEA to let them know that this plan is going to go down in the morning. And, they, and in the middle of the night, they had to go to this woman's house, extract her from the house, you know, tell her her life is in danger. It, it's a, you know, it was yeah. a little bit of a movie. My life was a little bit of a movie. It was crazy. Well, it, it does. It sounds like a perfect movie plot. Maybe there's a future in it. Uh, now... Oftentimes in these type of situations, you know, speaking from a supervisor in law enforcement, we forget the true victims. Um, how did you protect your family during this trial or, or, or during this episode? Uh, to, to be honest, there really was no protection. I mean, they, it's not like they did anything for me. At the end of, of that day, the next morning when we went back for this actual hit, they were going to uh, take my wife and myself and my kids to a hotel when they swooped down and arrested everybody. But the plan, unfortunately, didn't go down exactly as it was supposed to, as people will find out in the book, Betrayal in Blue. And uh, it got crazier from that point on. Well, what measures did you take to protect your family? I mean, you're dealing with now corrupt police, and who knows how deep this corruption went. You're dealing with Colombian cartels, and we all know that they don't play, and they take no prisoners. Exactly. Um, that was my part, My point exactly to my partner. Like, if we go ahead with this kidnapping plan and execution they don't leave witnesses. Colombians don't leave witnesses. They're not only just going to kill this woman, they're going to kill me and him. But he wouldn't see that. He just didn't see that. Did he have a family to be concerned with, or was he playing something? He was married. My, our wives were best friends. Our kids were best friends. We had sons at the same time. And uh, he, he just was, you know, full steam ahead. No caution whatsoever. So at, at this point, at, at what point did your agency discover that you had come clean? When I went back in for the second meeting with the uh, United States Attorney's Office, the Southern District, that's, that's when I came clean to them about everything that was going on, and I didn't tell my partner at that second meeting that I came clean. And uh, Internal Affairs and the DEA was also at the meeting, so that's when they found out. So, so how did that affect your relationships with other police and friends that you had in the force um, at that point? Uh, I was, I'd never seen no one again. That was it. 
That was it. I've never seen them again. I, I was basically involved. Well, after our arrest, I was isolated anyway. So even if I didn't cooperate, I, you know, you froze out. No one's ever talking to you again. Now, now have, since then, have you had an opportunity to see any of them or your ex-partner, and how did that go if you did? Regular, you know, uh, cops from my past, they see me down, there's no problem. I talk to them, they talk to me on, on the Internet, and, you know, they wish me the best with the book and the movie deal and all that stuff. And cops that I've been meeting around the country from interviews and, and going to different um, events, it's like a 50-50 thing. It's a love-hate thing. 50% of them are like, wow, that's crazy. That was great. I wish I was there. I wish I could have been doing the same thing. And the other 50% are like, you know, you're a low-life criminal. They don't want to know nothing. Did you ever worry about um, retribution of some sort? For the first, I'd say, couple of years I did. And then, you know, as time goes on, you get more laxed and, Things uh, didn't go by. Now, now I don't worry about. It. I'm, I'm in touch with every every old players that were in the game. They all talk to me. I, the uh, the one main boss from the drug organization Diaz. I text with him all the time. He's in the Dominican Republic. He got deported. Wow. So so it's all and it's good now with your family. Everything is fine. Like it never tore you guys apart or caused any problems. Everything's good with my family. The only one I have. And I don't, it's not exactly a problem. My, my ex-partner is a little bit bitter, which I guess is understandable because he, he feels I turned on him. But other than that, everyone else that was involved, and, there was, and like I said, it was seven cops arrested at the time. Everything's good with everybody. Wow, quite a story. Um, <clears throat> so uh, where do you expect to go now? Like what, what's, what's next for you? Well, I got the book that just came out December 6th, so we're, we're doing the, pushing that as much as we can because that basically tells the full details of the story that the documentary didn't tell. And uh, once that's done, I also did a, a contract with Sony, and Sony is uh, going to do a Hollywood adaptation, is that the word, of, of the documentary. Wow. Their own, their own version. Yeah. Well, who's going to play you? <laughs> They have not cast yet, so <laughs> I don't know. I've been, I've been in, rumors, rumors have been uh, told me the uh, Chris Pratt, Scott Eastwood, so it's got to be somebody in their late twenties, early thirties. So you know, I'm 56 now. So, so are you going to do all your own stunts? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's certainly an amazing what a, what a life. Now, when you look back at it. Um, w- would you? What would you have done differently? I, I guess there's a lot of things, probably, but yeah, like like I said, I, w- I would definitely just gone to an outside agency the second he gave me that money. Yeah, that way it's outside of internal affairs, whether you know the district attorney's office or, or the you know DEA at some point where it got to crazy money and crazy drugs. I mean, if I went to them with that with that first story of a hundred dollars, they would have left me out of the office, probably. Yeah. So you know, you did this whole memoir and and the book and and everything else. Um, what was your motivation behind it? Was basically just getting down a chronological historical event of my life because I knew my life was so crazy and so out of control. And as I was doing it, I was basically outside my body as I was doing it. I was I was seeing myself do these things, and you know, like I was watching a movie. 
So I was writing them down. The funny part is, too, not funny, but uh, I had this memoir. I probably had about 100 pages at the time when Suffolk County raised my house for the, for the drug ring, and they came across it not realizing what it was, and they just tossed it aside and flooded all over the floor. It was basically a written confession of all my crimes. <laughs> and they had no idea what they found. You know, they're, they're, they're in there looking for drugs and cash. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it, it, so what would you tell new cops in the business now or new people in, in NYPD and um, and if they get themselves into this situation? I, I guess it sounds corny, but what, what would your thing to say to them would be? My my advice is, again, it, it's still going to be a tough situation regardless of what I say because I've been through it and they're going to say, yeah, well, you didn't do that, so it's going to be hard to listen to what I said. You, got, you have to go to... Some safe place, and I, I wouldn't suggest internal affairs because, again, that's within the department, and you never know who's going to leave something back. you got to go to, an, even if you go to a, a reporter and, you know, let him know what's going on and document everything and, and whatever money you're, you're being given to by, by your partner or other cops on the job, put it in, you contact a lawyer, put it in an escrow so that you're not spending it and you're, you're more or less just documenting everything that happens, and, you know, hopefully it, it doesn't become a criminal act. Mm -hmm. But oh. to, to, well, take the money and, and try to deal with it yourself is it, not, not a good choice because it, it gets harder and harder. Each, each step gets more advanced, and eventually, you know, greed, like I said, greed takes over. Well, well, well Kim, let me, I mean, that, that, that's a good answer. But, but let me challenge you just a little bit on it, because I, I'm a lieutenant in the sheriff's department, and, and I consider myself to be somebody who is honest and forthright, and I try to portray that to my troops. And I understand what it's like to be at that ground level, and I understand what it's like to be in your shoes. Not to this extent, but was there... Speaking as a supervisor who, who loves his men dearly, and I would do the right thing by somebody who came to me with this situation, was there nobody in your department that you trusted or looked up to enough to go to them and say, hey, listen, I think that I'm in trouble, and what should I do? There was no one I would trust with this information, not at that time. I mean, and even yourself now, I mean, you're, you know, yeah, I believe you that you're a trustworthy lieutenant and boss and all that, but at some point when that officer comes to you, you're going to have to go to a higher up, and that officer knows that. You're not going to be able to keep it to yourself. At some point, you're going to have to tell someone else what's going on so the situation can be handled. So as much as he trusts you, he may not trust the person that you have to talk to. Mm -hmm. uh, you're absolutely right, and that's the horrible truth. From, from my experience, I would just go to an outside agency. And even then, if you go to an outside agency, you still don't know who you're talking to. But because it's an outside agency, I, I think it's a, a little safer. Now, for, for, for my benefit um, and others that may be in my shoes, i still got five years to retirement. What advice would you give to a supervisor should one of his men or women um, come to him with a situation like this. What information 
what advice would you give them? Would you still advise them to go outside? Step ahead already. If, if the officer's coming to you, he, he trusts you enough to trust whatever your decision is. And, and like we said, your decision is going to have to be, you're eventually you're going to have to tell someone else. You're going to be able to take in this information. You're not going to be able to advise him what to do when he goes back out in the street because, you know, God forbid something goes wrong and the guy gets killed. <laughs> that can't be on your head, so you have to go to someone else. So you're ahead of the game already if he came to you. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say, um, I, I respect what you did, and, and, and I admire you for, for the, the, the courage that it took to do what you did. I appreciate that. Not, not, every, you know, not everyone sees it like that. Well, at some point, Ken, we have to restore faith in the justice system. Um, what is the average citizen supposed to think when they hear that, that some of people who are the embodiment of the law are breaking the law and are no better than the criminals themselves. At some point, we have to restore the faith and say, listen, I realized that I was in a bad situation, so I chose to do the right thing and restore faith in the justice system. I understand that. I mean, it's, it's, people got to remember, too, first of all, this was back in the crazy 80s where drugs and crack and was out of control, was out of height. So it was more, I would think, more easily corruptible to the average officer, whereas now it's not there. I know the trust isn't there with the public, especially hearing this story, having this story out there, and other stories, there's other stories out there, but yeah. at some point you've got to be able to trust that officer, and there's plenty of good officers out there that are, you know, putting that trust and restoring that trust in, in the public. And you, you got the public has to use those officers as, as their role models, not, not, not the, you know, few guys that are, are corruptible. And it's, a, you know, 0.009% that becomes as crazy as we did. Right, right. Oh, and that's and that, sort of... That's any, yeah. any profession. Any, anybody's corruptible. Everybody has their number. Yeah, yeah, and that's, you know, and that's sort of um, why we want to talk to you, and that's why we do the interviews. We're very, we're trying to um, get the information out there and uh, restore things with the community and their policing, because we've got to uh, be on the same side here, you know. Absolutely, everyone's got to work together. Yeah, that's the only way we get through things. Um, well, it's just amazing. Uh, we really appreciate you taking all this time. Uh, you know, our our guest has been Ken Urell, and he's um, the the source, and he his memoirs are the source of the book Betrayal in Blue, and it's um, an amazing book, and it can be found, of course, on uh, you know our website. It's linked up as well as, of course, Amazon and all good bookstores. Um, thanks, thanks again for talking with us, Ken. Hi, I appreciate you guys having me on. And if anyone wants updates on the Hollywood movie or uh, book promotions and giveaways, you can follow me on Twitter, at Ken Urell, K-E-N-E-U-R-E-L-L. Fantastic. We'll put that on our website as well. This episode... To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night.
This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. <laughs>